Heavenly Father, please let a passion for your Son, Jesus, in our hearts as we learn from his holy word this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning's reading is from Luke 19, verses 11 through 26, which is printed in your bulletin, if you'd like to follow along. The parable of the ten minas. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them of a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then returned. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put the money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made a king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your meaner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your meaner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew Did you that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his meaner away from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you, Rip. Happy Labor Day, by the way. I hope you get to enjoy uh, some time and time together with friends and family and loved ones, maybe some neighbors. Um, we are uh, going to start considering the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus, in his three years of ministry on earth, spent a lot of time talking about the kingdom of God. And it's easy to kind of just write that off. It's, it's a little bit abstract, and what does that mean? And we kind of move on. But instead of just moving on, we're going to really spend some time looking into it because the kingdom of God often works in the exact opposite way to how we expect it to work. Like almost completely different. In fact, it's so different that Paul in 1 Corinthians says the wisdom of God is foolishness to this world. Like what God says is wise, people who don't follow God will say is foolish. That's how categorically different the kingdom of God is from what Jesus and Paul might call the kingdom of this world. And so we are faced with this choice of who, whom will we tr- whose wisdom will we trust? Do we trust the wisdom of God or do we trust the wisdom, so to speak, of the world? Whose invitation will we RSVP yes to? So we're going to spend some time looking at these. Now, if you're on our email list, you got the newsletter, and I said I was going to spend the next three weeks talking about a different value. I had written that a little while ago. Uh, The more I've gotten into this, the more I think there's enough here that it probably makes better sense to, to marinate a little bit more slowly on some of these kingdom values. And I've been thinking about this series for like years. I've been really looking forward to it. Um, so, so what does it mean that the kingdom of God is, in a, is a kingdom of abundance, not of scarcity? Or what does it mean that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of beauty, not utility? Or what does it mean that the kingdom of God is a slow kingdom, not a fast kingdom? There are a lot of other themes, but the more I've gotten into this, I realize instead of just blowing through these and check, 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 do one, two, three, and then move on, it might actually really benefit us to take our time. So we're going to spend actually the next three weeks thinking about what does it mean that the kingdom of God is an abundant kingdom as opposed to the kingdom of this world, which presents itself as a scarce kingdom. What does it mean to approach all of life with a mindset of abundance instead of scarcity? Scarcity, um, we all know what scarcity means. It just means that something's limited. Something, there's a limited supply. It's going to run out. So we think of it, um, and and here's what's important to remember about scarcity. There is a lot in this world that is scarce. The the obvious example is natural resources, right? There's only so much coal or oil in the world, and eventually it'll it'll run out. um, Water, in some senses, is scarce, especially in certain parts of the world. A couple of stories have just come in my, through my news feed recently about how certain groups are starting to toy with the idea of diverting part of the Mississippi River west into the Colorado River Basin because the Colorado River Basin is experiencing such a drought. See, for them, water is scarce, and so they're having to figure out, what do we, how do we get more of it? Certain man-made resources that are scarce, think of housing. (laughs) Uh, If you live anywhere near the seacoast, you understand the principle of scarce housing and expensive housing. There are a lot of things that are scarce. The trouble with that is when a lot of things in the world are scarce, we come to think of everything as scarce. And instead, Jesus invites us to consider what if his kingdom is not a kingdom that's governed by scarcity, 
but that's governed by abundance. So he tells us this parable. Now, a parable is is a story that in some ways is designed to make things less clear, not more clear. And that's really important. We want to read the parables and say, like, just give me the life lessons. Give me the thing to learn so I can move on and live a better life or something like that. That's really not why Jesus tells parables. If anything, he tells them to say, everything you thought you knew isn't actually so. And then sometimes if we're lucky, he'll say, maybe it's kind of like this, but not always. Not always. Jesus wants us to ask hard questions of the parables. Jesus wants us to be kind of uncomfortable or unresolved, to finish a parable and still think, I'm not quite sure what that means. Or what about that part? What did he mean by that? And that a parable is meant to stick. It's kind of like when you eat a peanut butter sandwich, right? And some of that peanut butter sticks to the roof, roof of your mouth. And an hour later, you're still tasting peanut butter. It's still stuck there. And you're still, a parable is like that. It's meant to stick. So the goal of these sermons, because we're going to spend a lot of time in the parables, is not just to explain the text and move on. We're not looking to master the word of God Actually, we're looking to let the word of God master us. So we're going to ask more questions, not fewer. I'll probably offer fewer answers, not more. And we'll get to wonder at the mystery of what Jesus teaches. In other words, this is not so much about just getting more information, but it's more about letting ourselves, opening ourselves to transformation, the transformation of Christ. So Jesus tells this parable, this really unusual story. Some of you may have heard it before. It's known, uh, Jesus also, Matthew tells us a version that Jesus tells. It's probably a little different. Um, Just like any kind of traveling figure, Jesus probably used a lot of the same teachings and stories over and over with some tweaks. So you may know this as the parable of the talents. Luke tells it a little bit differently. A master, imagine a master who has lots of servants, goes away for a long time. He gives a lot of resources to his servants, and he says, put this to work. Eventually, after many months, maybe many years, he comes home. One servant has really put that money to work, and he has invested it well, and it has grown tenfold. That's a good investment, by the way. Like, how many of us, wouldn't we all love for our investments to return tenfold? I don't care if it's tenfold over ten years. That's a great return on investment. Another servant invested, and it came back fivefold. And a third servant hid the money under the mattress so he wouldn't lose it. This morning, we're going to draw most of our observations about abundance and scarcity from that third servant. Let me just read those last two, those just two verses. This is where we're really zooming in this morning. This is Luke chapter 19, verses 20 and 21. The master is calling his servants to account. And then the third servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. Now, a mina, by the way, is, is a lot of money. It's about the equivalent of 100 days' wages. So we're talking somewhere in the tens of thousands of dollars. The third servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you. For you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. The master says, I don't remember if this is Luke or Matthew, you wicked and foolish servant. Now, 
what motivates the third servant? Why does he do what he does? Why not invest it? If the others can invest and get five or ten times, why doesn't he invest it and get something? What's his motive? He actually tells us right here in verse 21. What does he say? I was afraid of you. I was afraid of you. The first two servants invested that mina. They took a risk and they earned a return on it. The third servant was afraid of the risk. He was afraid of invoking his master's anger. And so he stuffed it under the mattress. The third servant was playing not to lose. You know the difference? You know what playing not to lose is? So I'm not, um, I'm not really a sports person. I don't really follow sports. I'm not all that interested with one exception. I went to a small school in North Carolina called Davidson College, and I love following Davidson College basketball. And so I'll never forget this. This is probably 10 or 15 years ago, and we just suffered a hard loss. And we should have won, which is what every team says when they lose. We should have won. And somebody in the press conference after the game asked the coach, he said, Coach, why'd you lose today? I'll never forget. He said, we lost because we weren't playing to win. We were playing not to lose. We lost because we weren't playing to win. We were playing not to lose. We were more afraid of losing than we were eager to win. Do you know the difference? If you're a sports person, we'll go back to financial metaphors if you're not a sports person in a minute. But if you're a sports, you know the difference between playing not to lose and playing to win? It's kind of a matter, it's a difference of posture as much as anything. So playing not to lose is getting the ball and you have a wide open shot, like a good shot, and you pass because you're afraid of taking the shot and missing. Playing not to lose is when you're so tentative because you're always afraid of making a mistake instead of getting lost in the joy of the game. Playing not to lose is playing stiff and rigid instead of loose and relaxed. It's when you dwell over your past mistakes instead of focusing on the next play. So again, from a basketball standpoint, playing not to lose is I missed four shots in a row. I'm not going to take any more shots. Playing to win is I missed four shots in a row. This one's going in. You see the difference? We played not to lose, our coach said. What's the difference between servants one and two who invested and returned something in servant three? He played not to lose. They were playing to win, and he played not to lose. They put the money to work. Now, we don't know how, and I wish I knew how to get my money to to return ten times or even five times. I would be happy with that. And if you have any sort of financial knowledge, you know that you don't earn a 10 or a 5 times return without a pretty significant level of risk, right? This is one of the basic rules of investing. Low risk, low reward, high risk, high reward. And potentially low risk, low loss, right? High risk, high loss. They took a significant amount of risk. You don't play it safe and earn a 10 times return on your investment, which makes me wonder, and I don't, I don't really know the answer to this, but I've always wondered this about this parable. What if the first two servants had lost money? How would the master have responded? Imagine the first servant came back and said, Master, I put your money to work, and I'm afraid I, got, I, I just made a bad investment, so here's half of your mina back. I lost half of it. What if? And how would the master respond? Like, how do you think? 
Remember, this isn't about necessarily answering the question. It's about exploring and wondering and letting the Spirit work, even through unresolved questions. But let's just make, point out a couple of things. One, it, it seems the master expected his servants to make some investments. He expected it of them. He was clearly a shrewd businessman. He expected them to put the money to work, which is what we see in his interaction with the third servant. The third servant says what? Master, I was afraid of you. Afraid of what? We can assume, I think rightly so. What is he afraid of? He's afraid of taking the risk of making the investment and losing. He's afraid of losing his master's money, to which the master said, then at least you should have put it in the bank and gotten that 1.5% that you can get on a money market account right now. It's going up. It'll be like a whopping one and three quarters next week, maybe. (laughs) At least you should have done something with it. It seems that the master expected, almost demanded, that his servants take some risks. Think about that. And the third servant was so paralyzed by the fear of losing that he did nothing. He was so paralyzed by the fear of making a mistake that instead of putting the money in the market and letting it do what money does, he shoved it in an envelope under his mattress. Which, by the way, and this just occurred to me this morning, I don't really know what to do with this, but the metaphor keeps going, I think. If you shove money under your mattress for 10 years and then you pull it out after 10 years, what do you have? you have less money. We all know that, right? Because of inflation, like the real value, it says the same number of dollars, but they're not worth as much. So actually by playing not to lose, he lost. You see that? How often, how often do we paralyze ourselves because we're afraid of making a mistake? How often do we take the safe path because we're afraid of taking the risk? Start thinking about this in terms, let this start to sink in in terms of even how you practice your faith. We might even think about it corporately in terms of how we interact with one another as a church or the decisions we make as a church. What does it mean and is it possible that the master expects us to take some risks? and knows what those risks involve. I was chatting with uh, one friend, this is years ago, a leader in, a leader in their church, and um, the church had to face this really, I mean, a really big, significant, very complex decision. And this person was, had some leadership, had a lot of sway in the process, and I remember they told me at some point, they said, we cannot afford to make a mistake. We cannot afford to get this wrong. And by the grace of God, I kept my big mouth shut because the first thing that came to mind was, well, you might. (laughs) Like, you might. You just told me how complex this is. And you just told me all the variables. And then you told me that you're sure there are variables you don't even know. You cannot possibly guarantee success in this. Like, you can make a, a good educated guess, take your best shot, and then move forward. But you can't guarantee that you won't make a mistake. And again, by the grace of God, I didn't, I didn't really say much of that. But that was my first, like, what, so what if you do? I cannot, we cannot afford to make a mistake. Really? How often do we approach our faith that way? 
cannot afford to make a mistake. Like, where does that come from? It comes from a mindset of scarcity. Let's play this out a little bit. Maybe you made a mistake. We're just, this is very broad examples here, but hopefully it's broad enough that we can all find ways that it applies. Maybe you made a mistake in your past. Imagine you made a mistake as a child. And that mistake meant that your friends made fun of you. You realized in that moment that your friend's affection or encouragement was a scarce resource. There was an end to it. And actually, you made the mistake. You said the wrong thing. You did the wrong thing. And it was silly and it was stupid and whatever. But it, you see, and you, you found the limit of their affection. They taught you through that affection is scarce. Maybe you made a mistake as a child and a family member, a parent, punished you for it. And you learned that so-and-so's affection or approval or, God forbid, love was a scarce resource. And you found the limit of it and you thought, I dare not get close to that limit again because that hurts. And yes, that hurts. Like, you are right. That hurts deeply. So I'm playing it safe. No more mistakes. You're living in a scarcity mindset. You see? But Jesus says the kingdom of God is not a scarce kingdom. It's an abundant kingdom. So what might it mean if you lived in a mindset and in a world of abundance? If, if the kingdom of God is an abundant kingdom, if God's love and God's approval and God's acceptance and God's grace and his forgiveness are abundant, not scarce. They're abundant. Like the same reason there's that water stain on the floor in front of you right now. Like it just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring out. How does that change things? If God's grace is abundantly flowing, even when you sin, even when you mess up, how does that change your approach? When we live in a scarcity mindset, we end up saying, I better not sin so that God isn't mad at me. I was in a seminar of um, uh, pastors and, and counselors, I guess about a year ago, and I remember sitting in a circle, and one of them was a, a counselor. She's a counselor, and she said a lot of the therapy work she does is with pastors. And she said there was just the other week, uh, one pastor was sitting in a sem- uh, session with her, and she said, what do you wish about God? And he said, I just wish that, that Jesus weren't mad at me. It's a pastor. He's living in a scarcity mindset. And I would wager that in some sense, every one of us is living in a mindset of scarcity. Maybe not exactly like that, but somehow. If that's how we view God, I just don't want him to be mad at me, then what's going to happen? We're going to play it safe. We're going to play not to lose instead of playing to win. Don't mess up. Don't make mistakes. Don't sin. Don't, don't, don't. Even when I say that, do you feel the, like, do you feel the weight on your shoulders? I just felt a weight on my shoulders just by, and that's funny because it didn't happen when I rehearsed this earlier, but like our fear of getting things wrong grows from the soil of scarcity that we believe, we actually believe 
even though we don't want to, that God's love is scarce and his affection is scarce and his acceptance is scarce. We're afraid that the well of his love just might dry up someday and so I better not draw or drink too deeply on that well lest it dry up. To which Paul writes in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does it transform our thinking to realize that God's grace is abundant? It's limitless. That our sin does not push God away, it draws him closer. Do you realize that? Your sin does not push God away. He sees your sin and leans in and wants to draw closer to you. How can that be? Of course, it's because he's a physician. Jesus says he's the great physician. Can you imagine going to a doctor and saying, hey doctor, I'm afraid I'm sick. Or hey doctor, I'm afraid I've got tendinitis. And the doctor says, I don't want to mess with that. Get better and then come to me later. You'd find a different doctor. You should find a different doctor. And if your God is a God who says, I don't want to deal with your sin, you get that together, then come to me, you should find a different God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's limitless. It's abundant. You see? You see how it transforms us? I was reading this um, book about six months ago, and, and the whole book, I, um, it was fine, but there was one really great section in it, and it stuck with me. This David Pallison is a, um, was, he died recently, a counselor and um, a professor of counseling, and he wrote this book. It's, um, he gives this example of a woman, young woman's growth in faith. Her name is Charlotte. I think it's a real story. I'm going to... I didn't want to just read the whole chapter, so I'm going to bop back and forth between reading little excerpts and then kind of summarizing what he says about them. But he starts by quoting this young woman, Charlotte, and this is from one of her diary entries. And she says, I've returned a lot recently to Isaiah 51. And then she quotes part of Isaiah 51. Listen to the words of God in Isaiah 51. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of a man who dies? of the Son of Man who's made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day. I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the sea so its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Now the author David Pallison goes on to describe this young woman, Charlotte. She's paralyzed by the fear of other people disapproving of her and especially of other people disagreeing with her. We call it people-pleasing, right? She's just paralyzed by this. And so in every situation, she's aware of how somebody might disapprove of her, which leads her to withdraw and to clam up. Like, we get that. That makes sense. Most of us would do that. She's, see, she's playing not to lose. 
And elsewhere, uh, she also alludes to self-medicating through food and exercise and friends and novels, none of which are bad things, but they don't fill you up. It's like, like those things are like, they're like white bread for the soul, right? Like they taste really good, but you'll be hungry again in about an hour. She's paralyzed her whole life by this longing for people's approval and by a fear that other people might disagree with her or not like her. And then she reads Isaiah 51, where God says, who are you that you're afraid? Why are you afraid of other people? They're going to die. Why are you not concerned about what I think of you? And then later on in that same chapter, he says, I have put words in your mouth. She realizes all of a sudden that her creator, the creator of the universe, loves her abundantly. And the abundant love of God is what transforms her. She's no longer paralyzed by what will people think. They better, their affection may be scarce, so I better play it safe. Which actually, you know, it looks like humility, but it's complete self-preoccupation. It's not humble at all. What will they think of me, 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 you see? But God is transforming her by saying, I love you. Like, my, my love for you knows no bounds. And so now she's set free by this abundant approval and love she finds in Christ. So here's how, here's how he analyzes it. And I love this part. He says, now... Charlotte is tasting the logic of Martin Luther's curious exhortation to sin boldly. Step out, live life, and yet always be open to correction. God's mercies are reliably new every morning. As with a good mother or father, the Lord's compassion and hands-on parenting continue through the ups and downs. He says the Christian life typically lurches forward rather than marching in a uniformly straight line. But the patient grace of Christ, listen to this, the patient grace of Christ means a person can live life without paralyzing perfectionism and obsessive self-examination. That's worth reading again. The patient grace of Christ means that a person can live life without paralyzing perfectionism and obsessive self-examination. Charlotte has always held back in social settings. Now that she's beginning, I love this part, now that she's beginning to speak up, she'll probably say things she regrets or may find herself talking too much. She might have to ask forgiveness more often. She might find herself sinning more more is in quotes, but she'll actually be sinning less because she's growing up as a daughter of the king. Isn't that beautiful? It's the difference between just don't mess this up and saying, what is good? How can I pursue and chase after what is good? And it might mean risk, and it might mean course corrections, and it might mean mistakes, and it might mean losing my investment. It might mean sin. Do you believe that God is an abundant God? If so, then why would you not feel free to draw deeply and drink deeply of the well of his grace? If God is really an abundant God, then there's no limit to his grace that can cover your sin in see, even in seeking him. He is an abundant God. He is an abundant God and we're even about to celebrate his abundance. 
every time you question whether God's love is truly abundant, you can look to the cross. Remember, God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we think our sin will push God away, we have forgotten the cross. So as we move to the Lord's table, let's remember God's abundant love again. Lord, teach us to remember and help us to remember that you are an abundant God. Amen.